Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. So far, this season on Cultivated, with the build-up to the 2020 election, we've talked to a variety of folks who have had a stake, personal or otherwise, in the outcome of the election. David French, John Kingston, even Beth Moore, known mostly for her Bible studies, has been bold in making her stance known about President Trump and evangelical political engagement. So here we are. The election is pretty much over, barring some unforeseen events. I mean, it is 2020 after all. And so, where are we? Where do we go from here? What's next for evangelicals in politics? And what's next for the conservative movement in which they were for decades its lifeblood? To answer those questions, I reached out to Rich Lowry, editor of National Review. I really appreciate you making time for this. I know this is a, uh, it's not a slow news season, I guess. Is yeah, no, not at all. I'm delighted to do it. Not so a, where are you, by the way? No problem. I'm in Louisville, Kentucky. Oh, great. Okay. So I've been here. This has been home for 30 years now. So most of my life. Awesome. Um, uh, so I, I was doing research and just, just prepping for this. And at one point I popped onto your Wikipedia page um, to check things out. I, I, I hope this doesn't come as a shock. I'm not sure the Wikipedia writers are fans of yours. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, my wife was, I don't know what picture they currently have up there, but they have some horribly unflattering picture. My wife tried to change, but couldn't. So <laughs> yeah, I, I, it was like, what? maybe they could feature more than the negative reviews. Of some of the books. There's a pine wobbler sitting on a hollow limb. He seems to have the whole morning out right in front of him and everything. He sings from the branch that he's sitting on It seems to hush the leaves and the colors all around Now first he sings and then he goes And what it means, it's hard to know From Christianity Today, you're listening to Cultivated Conversations about faith and work I'm Mike Cosper, and on today's episode, my guest is Rich Lowry. You may know him from the National Review, from his many appearances on cable news, or from his podcast, The Editors. We talk about how he ended up at National Review, about where evangelicals are in politics right now, and about where things may be headed. So stay with us. I grew up going to a Presbyterian church in the neighborhood, very mainline um, Presbyterian, not, not a lot of flavor, delightful church. Uh, it's, it's uh, really, it has um, in, in recent years, I've stayed in touch with them, uh, really established a wonderful community there, but it was a little bit of a check the box exercise and I had a little bit of an eclectic family background with regard to faith. My grandmother was a Christian scientist. We would occasionally go to services with her. My 
father was a uh, elapsed Catholic, basically never talked about religion whatsoever. So it was my mom who took us uh, to church and in, in Sunday school. Uh, but I always, uh, I was always a believer and always took it seriously. And then over time, my faith uh, deepened uh, some reading, reading a Russian literature, uh, particularly uh, that was in college. And then particularly when I moved to New York, I was originally from Virginia, going to Redeemer mm. and um, listening to to Tim Keller had a big, big influence on me. Why did I, why did I end up hooked up with Redeemer? It might have been after 2004. Okay. Um, but, you know, Tim Keller, obviously just hugely uh, talented um, speaker, preacher, thinker, and pitch perfect in terms of, of a, a, a seeker-friendly um, message. So I wasn't uh, technically a, a seeker uh, in that sense, but I was an urbanite, you mm-hmm. know, with uh, um, some of those cultural biases. And Tim was just just uh, kind of pitch perfect um, speaking to that audience. Mm-hmm. So eventually, um, n- no offense to Tim, and we're all praying for him now with his illness eventually you kind of get you know even the best preacher in the world after um years you kind of get the basic message and the problem i had with the redeemer is a little bit uh, it was so big and when, when i stopped going there they were beginning to break it up a little bit you mm-hmm. could always be part of a small group but i never was there uh so i was looking after that for something that had a little smaller um sense of community and more intimacy and i ended up going to a non-denominational church in lower manhattan for years did you find you know keller has a pretty unique i mean it's not unique in terms of sort of reformed tradition but a very strong i think well articulated vision for faithful presence cultural transformation did that stuff kind of resonate with where you were coming from philosophically politically as well um i don't know whether it was um I wouldn't say uh, politically by by any means because he he was very conscientious about avoiding mm-hmm. uh, any of that. I'm just um, I, I guess what I kind of just in terms of my personal predilections found appealing to it. I'm a text guy. I'm a book guy. I love reading, mm-hmm. right? And I love deep readings of literature uh, and of the Bible. And uh, this is just, um, I, I, I'm very much a low church Protestant in this sense. I, I, want, I want the Bible. I want someone who knows the Bible and can teach me something about a particular passage or parable or whatever it is in a guitar. That's all I need. <laughs> That's all I need. And one thing at Redeemer initially that I was uncomfortable with, they, they have a very eclectic um, musical offering you can go in the uh, at least this was as of years ago you could go in the morning and get traditional music or you could go in the evening and get contemporary and initially i wasn't uh, so into contemporary now i love contemporary uh, christian music so um get, give me a good sermon give me a bible reading give me people really into to singing um and that that that's enough for me i don't, I don't need the i don't need a big cathedral i don't need mm-hmm. anything redeemer when i was going there was meeting at a uh, um, a college, you know, and using the auditorium of, of the college, this non-denominational church I was going to is just using a meeting space. So, so that's, that's all I, that's all I need. Plus the community in the sense of community right. believers who, um, uh, uh, are interested in each other's lives and, and supporting each other in the faith. For many folks, their vocational journey is a winding road into the work they want to do. Not so for rich though. 
In fact, in many ways, it couldn't have been more direct. Well, it's it's really, I'm very blessed because it's all I've ever wanted to do after I gave up the dreams of having a, a baseball career, which kind of flamed out to, in, in high school. I discovered Bill Buckley through his old show, Firing Line, then discovered National Review, started reading National Review in high school. And literally, there was a career form they had us fill out in a social studies class. I think it was a history class. And it asked, where do you want to be working, you know, what locations, what city, and what do you want to be doing? And I literally wrote, you know, in, in high school, I don't know whether I was a sophomore, junior, or whatever, that I wanted to be uh, working in New York for National Review Magazine. Hmm. And basically everything I, I did from that point was kind of geared to it. He made a daily habit of writing, responding to op-eds in the newspaper and his own notebooks and journals. Eventually, at the University of Virginia, he became the editor of the Virginia Advocate, a conservative campus paper, which itself opened the doors for him to work for a year for Charles Krauthammer after he graduated. Krauthammer has a tremendously distinguished career. After enduring an accident that would leave him permanently paralyzed from the waist down, he went on to serve, lead, and influence in politics and journalism for decades, including winning a Pulitzer Prize in 1987. Krauthammer died after a long battle with cancer in 2017. Oh, it was terrifying. You know, I was 21, 22 years old, and he, he, he was a deeply considerate and thoughtful man, but just inherently forbidding. Hmm. There was just an inherent dignity to him. You knew he was much smarter than, than you were, and I was an insecure, you know, 22-year-old on top of it. So it was, there, there's still things I, I just take away from, having seen him uh, work up close that were uh, uh, that that are valuable uh, lessons um, to this to this day and an opinion defend depends on fact and uh, your, your opinion without fact is is nothing and even someone like Charles who's you know wasn't it's not like Bob Novak, who's doing a reported column, but every column in one sense is is reported. And there's just a, a tremendous amount of work that goes in the back end of being able to say uh, compelling things, e even just for 700 words, you know, and Charles was he had one column, one, one column a week that ran in the Washington Post that was syndicated. And it, it just uh, that was just a tremendous amount of effort and thought that went into that from someone who was completely brilliant. So it was a good lesson in the, the work ethic um, necessary. But then Charles, you know, you can't, you, you can't uh, work for Charles Krauthammer and figure out how to be Charles Krauthammer because there's always going to be one Charles Krauthammer because there's just an incredible innate uh, ability and talent there. And obviously the same was uh, with, with Bill Buckley and the true greats, you know, there's no, there's no imitating them. Hmm. Who were some of the other uh, writers? I mean, you mentioned the the Russian literature. I'm guessing that's Dostoevsky and those folks. Yes. Like, who yeah. were some of the other foundational kind of thinkers, writers that shaped your worldview? Well, I love the brothers Karamazov, which I think is you know um, a, a a very uh, deep grappling with the problem of evil, and um, doesn't come up with. Uh, uh, a good, crisp, clean answer, uh, at least not a good rational answer, because I don't think there is one. The only answer is that our, our Lord came here and suffered with us and was nailed to a cross. That's 
to me, that's the only, the only uh, possible answer, but you know, otherwise writers that you would expect, um, C.S. Lewis, um, Walker Percy, Hmm. um, and, uh, Whitaker Chambers, the uh, the great uh, 20th century conservative writer. His book Witness is a profound meditation on uh, faith and on reason and on our civilization. Um, so, th- so those those are ones that I would mention off the top of my head. Generally, I'm uh, I don't read many novels anymore, un- unfortunately. But I'm I'm a big reader of, of history and and mm-hmm. biography. So, what made you decide to? to be a, a, a pundit and a journalist as opposed to a politician, you know, given that you have a significant amount of conviction about these things. Um, I, I just had no natural interest in, in being a politician. Um, I, I liked sitting around reading books um, <laughs> rather than attending committee meetings. It, it never even occurred to me, you know, college to run for students, student council. So maybe if I had to do all over again, maybe I'd think about that more. Um, but it didn't, you know, I'm the, the son of a professor, um, who, who also just like sitting around and reading books. So that, that's right. just, um, that's, that was my personality and natural inclination. So, uh, yeah. and, and, you know, and politics, um, look, you, obviously politicians can be hugely influential and may, you know, uh, influence the country for, for good or ill, but there's just a, a lot of it. That's, that's not very interesting. That involves a, uh, an element of maneuver and or dishonesty just sort of inherently. Um, so it's, uh, um, I, I, I like, I like, uh, this side of the business better where you can, you, you can speak your mind, uh, freely and don't have to, uh, spend a lot of time, um, catering to people you might not want to cater to. Nonetheless, National Review has its own constituencies that see the Trump era very differently. For some, that means wearing a MAGA hat and applauding every rally and boat parade. For others, it's meant being a loud, loyal, and vocal opposition. Some will say that NR has looked the other way on too many issues. Others will say they've been weak-kneed and should have stood by the president. To be sure, National Review has given a voice to all of these perspectives, including in this most recent election. They published Andy McCarthy when he was making his case for a yes vote for Trump. But they also published Charles C.W. Cook with a maybe, and Ramesh Panuru with a no. And then, in his signature style, Kevin Williamson published his own take, titled simply, Hell No. What do you think is going to happen particularly given the way white evangelicalism has been married to the Trump phenomenon. Yep. Um, what do you, what do you think is next from here? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. First of all, in terms of national review. So yeah, we published our against Trump issue in December, 2015. Okay. It was before the Iowa, Iowa caucuses. And we, we thought that was the best juncture to, tr- to try to, to, um, take him out. He actually lost the Iowa caucuses, but it didn't make any, you know, the usual, dynamic you lose iowa then then you're down a couple notches in new hampshire maybe you lose new hampshire and then and then you're done that obviously didn't happen he just stayed completely steady in new hampshire and then um didn't run the table there's some bumps on the way but mm-hmm. um if i had to do over again i would do the same thing because the alternatives then were a bunch of other uh, conservatives and you know there's this counterfactual argument that no one can settle about whether you know would marco rubio be- beat hillary clinton or not i tend to think uh, he could have, uh, whether he would have, I, I don't know, or Ted Cruz, 
But anyway, then once he was president, you know, he's president and the alternative is not Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio. There's not any other, there's not any alternative. He's not going anywhere. So we, um, we, we applauded him when he did things that we thought were right. We defended him when he thought he was being criticized unfairly, which happened a lot. And we criticized him ourselves when he thought he was um, saying things that were um, intempered, um, ill-considered false when he was um, doing things that were were all those things. Um, so, so we tried to main, maintain independence and to air the debate. Um, so we have some of our writers that are just fiercely anti-Trump and will never be otherwise. And we have some writers that <clears throat> were, were uh, very pro-Trump. So uh, I hope it was an interesting offering, but it was, was not always, diff- it was not always easy because uh, I'm used to not being able to please everyone, but sometimes not being able to seemingly please anyone was, uh, <laughs> was a different experience. So I don't know. I, you know, what I would guess is Trump will have staying power. If he'd lost in a landslide, it, that would have been a major repudiation and the party eventually just would have turned his back. It's back on him, including evangelicals. That's not going to happen now. Uh, he was close enough. Um, and you know, once again, to defied the pundits, to the polls and has this argument that unfortunately I think is being uh, accepted too readily by a lot of people that he was robbed. And look, I'm sure that there is fraud. Uh, there's fraud in every election, but fraud accounting for 70,000 votes in these key states you would need to flip. <clears throat> I doubt that very much. I'm an evidence-based guy, so if I see evidence of it, I'll, I reserve the right to change my mind, but I don't think I'm gonna see any evidence of it. Um, but he'll, he'll go out you know, as the martyred um, the martyred president who was undone by um, liberal cheating. And a lot of people believe that. Uh, certainly enough of people will believe it to make him a, a continued figure of a lot of influence and power in the party. I think it'll, it'll be a little bit like Sarah Palin after 2008. She loses the vice presidential race. But the next two years, the media is obsessed with everything she says and does. And her endorsements the most treasured prized one in the Republican Party. I think that'll that'll stay true. That'll be true as well of Trump and he might start some digital media property also to go after Fox. And and he'll certainly say he's considering running again and might well run again in 2024. I think that'd be kind of a heavy lift, uh, but it's certainly possible. And it would seem in theory, and I, I underline in theory, uh, because these never these things never play out the way you think. Um, there, there's always someone in presidential politics who um, figures out a new way to do it and um, defies your expectations. But I would think the the challenge for the party is how do you hold on to these Trump voters, or at least enough of them? You know, he's added to the working class uh, element of the Republican coalition. There, there's already it was already sliding that way prior to Trump, but he accelerated it. Um, so how do you basically hold those voters while at the same time making yourself less offensive and radioactive to the suburbs? And um, that, that uh, the, the path that, that Trump set out here is just too narrow electorally. He just he barely got over the top in 2016 and couldn't quite do it himself uh, this time. So clearly the, the party's appeal needs to be widened out some, not hugely, uh, but some in, in, in presidential politics. And then hopefully, you know, that this is very inchoate. Um, and we're looking at kind of small differences in the scheme of things. but this election points to the possibility of more working class oriented 
politics that breaks across racial lines and enables the Republicans to make inroads again among Latinos and African-Americans that it hasn't in a long time, at least not since George W. Bush right. uh, in 2004. So, so that's promising. Plus, I would have also thought that the Republican Party, if Trump lost, we'd be we, we need to rebuild. We need to engage in all sorts of soul searching. The soul searching is probably still necessary, but the rebuilding is not. I mean, the, it looks like Republicans are going to hold the Senate. They've come very close to winning the House. And maybe if they'd been, they were kind of convinced themselves by their own bad polling that they had to be on defense. And they spent a lot of resources def- defending seats that ended up not being that close. If they had been more on offense, they might have won the House, incredibly enough. Mm-hmm. And they're still in a strong position in the states. So it's a, it's a party that's still uh, robust, but has uh, now clearly like a, a Trump wing that you need. And for lack of better word, like a Paul Ryan uh, wing of more traditional conservatives that you need too. And when you get them both, that's a winning coalition. When you get them kind of falling off uh, on one side or the other, it's a losing coalition. To, 2018, Trump wasn't on the ballot. Republicans didn't blow it out in the rural areas the way that they did in 16 and, and 20, and they get wiped out by the sur- suburban uh, tsunami. This time around, Trump blows it out in the, the rural districts and the exurbs, and then there's just this enough suburban Republicans that are like, ah, we can't abide him personally, so they, they don't vote for him, and he loses. So you, you, need, you need to keep these two... Um, factions together and they overlap on almost everything almost mm-hmm. um but there are things that things that they don't so it'll be be tricky keeping them together this episode is brought to you in part by asbury theological seminary a multi-denominational evangelical seminary rooted in the wesleyan tradition serving nearly 100 different denominations Asbury Seminary prepares theologically educated, sanctified, spirit-filled men and women to evangelize and spread scriptural holiness throughout the world. Asbury Seminary is a spiritually vibrant, academically rigorous community with a residential campus in Central Kentucky, extension sites in Orlando, Tampa, Memphis, Tulsa, and Colorado Springs, and fully online programs. With over 1,800 students from 50 countries, Asbury Seminary is committed to embracing a church that encompasses all people, languages, and ethnicities. Learn more at asbury.to slash get started. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. What has baffled me in the midst of this, so I'm, I'm sort of at the end of the Gen X millennial, beginning of the millennial age group, and so I came of age, you know, I was a teenager during the Clinton years and the drumbeat of character, 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 just yep. like drilled into my head. Couldn't have been drilled harder. And so it's, it's the question that I feel like a lot of evangelicals and a lot of non-evangelicals, a lot of, a lot of uh, non-conservatives have been asking this whole time, you know, how do we understand this alliance 
particularly around Trump, because you would think, you know, when you talk about these two coalitions, I, I totally get that. When you hear evangelicals talk, white evangelicals especially talk, they talk about religious liberty, they talk about the judges, um, they, they talk about pro-life uh, causes. And, but if you look across the board at, at what, can, what the Republicans have to offer and what conservatives generally have to offer, it's not like Trump's the only guy out there beating that drum. Right. And it's not like he's necessarily beating that drum convincingly all the time. Sometimes it doesn't seem like he really cares about some of those issues. Right. Uh, I mean, he farmed out the whole judges list to the Federal Society and all that. Do you, do you think there's other factors going on or do you, th would you, do you think it's just push comes to shove, people retreat to their corners? Well, I think there are a couple things. One, the, the policies, and uh, you know, they, they've been—he's been a rock on this stuff. And I would—I didn't expect that. If you—if you told me that, uh, I, people probably did tell me that in 2016. I say you're crazy. What, what makes you think that he's going to follow through on anything? Uh, he says this is a guy who's not emphatically a man of his word, but he he realized that he needed that the social conservative part of the Republican coalition is the most powerful and the most important. So he could be off the reservation on entitlements. He could be off the reservation on trade. He could want to spend on, on deficits, but he realized he could not be <clears throat> pro-choice. He could not be pro-gun control. And he just stayed true to that. And judges are really important. So he stayed true to that. So he deserves credit for that. But I think a couple other things are going on. One is just people, unfortunately, um, are, are naturally not inclined to nuance, right? So to the, the extent I've been supportive of Trump, um, it, I, I've always acknowledged there's an enormous moral downside to that. You know, his his character, his coarsening of the public discourse, his cruelty uh, to people, th those are real costs, real, right? So, you know, I, I come up with the, I came up with this balance and I say supportive rather than, you know, a strong supporter. All right, I'll, I'll, the policies are probably more important than all that. But, it, but it's, that's a real question. And I just think a lot of people once, once they, they're like, okay, I, I'm going to support them because of the policies. Then they just don't want to hear anything <laughs> uh, negative. And this is how you get these these evangelical leaders on TV making excuses for the worst sort of mis, misbehavior or, or just um, deceiving themselves about the nature of the guy. You know, I've talked to really sophisticated and intelligent <clears throat> evangelicals engaged in politics will come up with these uh, convoluted explanations for why, you know, the, um, this seems like ancient history now, but why, why he, he didn't have an affair with Stormy Daniels or it was not proved. Of course he did. Of course he did. And it's wrong, right? You, you made a comment there that was, was interesting to me. Um, he realized that social conservatives were the strongest wing of the party. Like, how did he know that? <laughs> Like, like coming from where he came from, you know, totally outside. Like, how did he figure that out? I don't know. You know, there, there are people who told him. Okay. But there are people who told him a lot of other things that made zero impression on him. And I just think this goes to, um, look, I have a lot of problems with him. He lost this election. The way he's handling it is disgraceful. But this is, in many ways, like um, a once-in-a-generation political talent. And he, he read the room. Right. So he'd go speak at a, a conference with a lot of evangelicals in the room and, and he'd get what what motivated, what excited them. Um, and and he, he just operated on sheer gut 
uh, political instinct hmm. and uh, figured a way to come from nowhere in 2015. I mean, he talked about running for president and and um, and and totally you know take over the Republican Party, find this coalition that no one thought quite existed. You know, there've been theories that it existed, but no one thought it really did and uh, bind it to him and mobilize it in a massive way and in two national elections. And and also in both these elections, he uh, you just can't discount his skills as a political performer. You know, these rallies, the media would focus on the outlandish things he would say, and oh my gosh, he's so off message and he's hurting himself. Um, but usually, you know, 90% of the content was on message and the 10% that was off message was really entertaining and if you if you have Trump supporters you're close to, you're probably used to the experience of just sitting down for 90 minutes. I'm just going to watch it like it's Seinfeld and and the heyday, you know, when Seinfeld was appointment uh, television. And this is the reason why you know a lot of people are going to want to uh, ambitious Republicans running in 2024 are going to want to pick up the Trump coalition, learn the lessons of his politics, kind of have the same uh, attitude to trade and immigration. But this is the X factor, like. Can they go out and be that outrageous, that entertaining, that funny, and hold the attention of millions of people on TV and gather, attract, you know, tens of thousands of people in relatively obscure places in the country that never see those kind of crowds? The answer is no. None of them are going to be able to do that. They have to figure something else out and some other way to, to get around it because that's that's just the Trump Trump X factor that you just you can't learn. You can't really mm-hmm. explain. He just had it. Yeah. It makes you that Marshall McLuhan quote, you know, the medium is the message. I mean, in this case, it was him. It, it almost didn't matter what he said. Um, yep. cause he could say the crazy, he could say the outlandish. Um, and it, it, no one, no one who was loyal to him, you know, was going to back down. I mean, I'll never forget in 20, uh, 2016, I'd, I'd written some things that were, were, were fairly strongly anti-Trump and, um, didn't really think much of it because I just thought, well, th- of course, like this is just this is just a re- rational response to the man, you know, if you're actually conservative and evangelical and committed to these things and got all this blowback over it. And I was complaining about the blowback to my dad. I was like, I, I can't believe this. And my dad was like, oh, really? Like, we really like him. And I'm like, what? What are you talking about? And um, his response, I'll never forget it. He goes, well, we were big fans of The Apprentice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, one of the one of the light bulb moments for me is I had a family member very very pro Trump, um, and uh, I remember him, to him saying to me, I forget what it was, yeah, you know, somewhere in 2016, and he he's like, defend Trump, defend Trump. I was like. I'll defend him when he's right. He's like, no, defend him when he's wrong. <laughs> I should have known then what the next four years were going to be like. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, um, so if, you know, is there a way from here where people who are really concerned about the conservative movement, um, evangelicals who have kind of found themselves on the outside because of the sort of never Trump, whether they wear the label or not, I mean, that's that's where a lot of folks are. Um, is there? Do you see a, an opportunity for those folks um, for some of this new coalition that seems to have emerged in this this last election? Do you see a, a way for them to come together to reunite around policy to reinvigorate some of the character arguments? Like, do you see that happening, or do you see it being 
continuing this kind of pragmatic power argument that has made sense for uh, conservatives during during all this. Well, I, you know, when Trump is um, less a lesser figure, because I, I think he's still going to be a figure, right. you know, not president of the United States. Um, some of this contention will diminish, but in terms of the party, there's going to be the split between the populist and more uh, traditionalist going forward. Um, and there may be, um, I don't know what, you know, there's not going to be another, no one's going to be quite get away with acting like Trump. I mean, Trump would only get away with that, but there, there, there could be, you know, follow on figures that try to kind of imitate that, uh, that style and I think that's probably what's most repulsive to um, never Trumpers and to, uh, to like, well, at least to suburban uh, Republicans and and probably to younger um, evangelicals. I, I would just I would doubt that style is going to be dominant uh, in the party um, going forward. Um, so 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 maybe this some of this contention over character and how much it matters. Um, maybe some of that goes away because I, I think a, a lot of that was um, driven specifically by Trump and his his powerful appeal to most evangelicals and his desperate character flaws. Um, so hopefully, whatever rises up next will not have those kind of character flaws. And and everyone you would think that would um, everyone we're talking about as presidential candidates in twenty twenty four aren't you know Nikki Haley, Tom Cotton, Josh Hawley these these are good decent people. Um, so we'll see. Right. It's hard to imagine them commanding 90 minutes of Fox News a night. Right. Though, right. Too. First he sings and then he goes. And what it means, it's hard to know. 